0: Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, here's your host, Jason Day.
1: Hello my friends and welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. I'm your host Jason Day, and we have a tremendous episode for you this week as I had the opportunity to speak with Rachel Den Hollander. Rachel is a devoted Christ follower, an attorney, and an advocate who came to international recognition as the first woman to speak publicly after filing a report against former USA Gymnastics team doctor Larry Nasser, one of the most prolific sexual abusers in history. Rachel was named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People and one of Glamour Magazine's Women of the Year. She received the Inspiration of the Year Award from Sports Illustrated and was a joint recipient of ESPN's Arthur Ashe Courage Award. Rachel is sharing her story in her new book, What is a Girl Worth?, and continues to speak from a place of faith, hope, and justice as she advocates for sexual abuse victims. Now, on this week's episode, Rachel and I discuss the issues churches are facing when it comes to sexual abuse, including why many churches struggle with addressing sexual abuse in a biblical way. Rachel shares how she navigated her faith and came to embrace hope, After experiencing abuse, both in a church setting and as an athlete, you will definitely want to share this episode with your entire ministry team. Rachel is so insightful. She is so inspiring. So please, won't you join me in my conversation with Rachel Denhollander? Rachel, thank you for making the time to be with us. Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast.
0: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here.
1: Rachel, uh, many of our listeners are likely aware of your story. Uh, you were the first victim to speak out uh, to publicly accuse Larry Nasser of sexual abuse. Your bravery in speaking out led to, I think it was over 150, maybe maybe more, others to to speak out about the abuse that they encountered at the hands of the former USA Gymnastics team doctor. And your victim statement at that trial was, um, was just incredibly powerful. I remember... Um, initially um, seeing it on the news and listening to you share. Um, It's been heard by, you know, who knows, maybe millions of people. In that statement, you asked an important question. And the question you asked uh, multiple times is, what is a girl worth? And that is the title of of your new book. And uh, to begin our conversation, Rachel, can you share with us a bit about what led you to tackle that question? What is a girl worth? And what led you to the point of speaking out when you did?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in terms of what led me to the point of speaking out when I did, uh, that was really quite a long process. Um, you know, it's because the abuse happened in a medical context, uh, it took a little while before I really understood uh the extent of what had happened. Uh there came a point in time with treatment with Larry that I recognized that uh one incident in particular was sexual abuse. Uh and that was when I stopped uh stopped seeing him. Uh, but I didn't disclose to my parents right away. I just wasn't able to do that. Uh and when we did when I did disclose to them and we started uh discussing what had happened uh and considering how you know how far did this abuse go. Um, you know, it was, it was quite a process of wrestling with the reality of what had happened uh, and then figuring out what to do with it. I was around 17 years old at the time uh, that I really started to, to understand what had happened. Um, and at that point in time, I was already very painfully aware of how sexual assault survivors are treated, uh, both in the church context and just societally, mm-hmm. uh, of the attacks that are immediately levied against a survivor who speaks up and of the difficulty of speaking up against an abuser who is beloved in the community. Uh, And in my case, uh, you know, Larry was surrounded by a Big Ten university. He was surrounded by uh, an NGB, a national governing body for the Olympic sport that makes uh, some of the highest revenue in the Summer Olympic Games. Uh, And he was surrounded by the United States Olympic Committee. So I had three very powerful organizations uh, that I was confident were actively shielding this perpetrator. Um, and so at the time, you know, I, I, said to my mom, I can't, I can't do this anonymously and I won't be able to do it without media pressure. There has to be media pressure to be able to reach other survivors. There has to be media pressure to overcome, uh, you know, the, the power that these organizations have and that the gymnastics community has to shield him. Uh, and I just wasn't sure how to do that. You know, do you, mm-hmm. do you walk into a news agency at 17 and say, Hey, I, I have a story for you. You know, how, right. how does that work? Um, and so really what I was waiting for for the next 16 years was just a chance to be believed, uh, the opportunity to, um, to to be able to reach other survivors, the opportunity to uh, generate enough public pressure uh, to take control of the narrative from Larry's hands. And when I saw a, a newspaper article done by the Indianapolis Star on how the United States Association of Gymnastics had been routinely covering up uh, sexual abuse by its coaches. Uh, I figured this, this, you know, this is it. This is the chance. These reporters understand the dynamics. They've seen the dark underbelly of the sport. Uh, you know, maybe they can find something about Larry, or maybe they'll report on my story. Uh, and so I wrote to them immediately, and I told them what I had been through, and that I was willing to go as publicly as as necessary if they could just get the truth out. Um, and so, really, that was the first chance I had ever seen. Hmm. And, you know, by God's grace, the right pieces were in place. I had reporters who excelled in investigative journalism and they were able to, uh, to tell my story and I was able to file a police report um, yeah, and the right pieces were in place and it did what it needed to do.
1: Well, um, I can't imagine, Rachel, what it must have been like to, to kind of carry that um, during that time and, and waiting for an opportunity to, to be heard and, and like you, you said, to be believed. What does that say about um, our institutions, whether they be government institutions or universities or even churches, that it puts those who have been abused um, sometimes in a position where they, they feel they must wait?
0: Yeah, I think that is one of the most um, significant hurdles we have to overcome societally. Mm. Yeah, everyone has an intrinsic response of community protectionism. Uh, everyone has a community that they feel aligned with whether that is a you know a university or your alma mater whether that's your sports team your physical community your political community or your church community your faith community everyone has a community that they align with that they identify with everyone has goals and visions for those communities whether it's you know the next championship title you'd like to see your university win whether it's religious or theological goals everyone has you know political goals everyone has overarching ideas that they want to see their community accomplish and so what tends to happen when you see something that could potentially threaten that community is you want it you don't want it to be true mm. you want it to be different and so everyone is willing to say child sexual abuse is horrible. We say that all the time. And a lot of times I think we feel it and we mean it. But when it comes to our community and we would have to deal with it when it would cost to deal with it, there's an intrinsic desire to not have it be true, to have it be different. Uh, And so typically what you will see is you will see members of a certain community, say a political community, and they will speak very loudly against uh, other candidates that have been accused of abuse who are on the other side of the aisle. But when their own candidates are accused of abuse and it would cost when they would have to not support that candidate, when there's a chance that they would lose a political election or some perceived political goal, then there's an underlying motivation to have it not be true, to have it be different. And we have that same response, whether it's a theological or a religious motivation, whether it's sports or, uh, you know, or some kind of physical community motivation, we all have those intrinsic responses. And so the, the biggest hurdle that we really have to overcome in how we respond to survivors of abuse is being willing to look at the truth and being willing to examine our own biases, being willing to speak out against abuse when it would cost us, because that's really the measure of how much it matters. And I think a lot of times in religious institutions, in every institution, but particularly in church institutions, we're starting with the wrong questions. Uh, In church institutions, we frequently feel the pressure uh, to to make the gospel seem appealing. We feel the pressure to carry the reputation of the church, Mm. to protect Jesus's reputation. Uh, And that's not our weight to carry. That's the wrong motivation and goal and ideal. Jesus can protect himself. Jesus will purify and protect his church. The gospel is not dependent on a particular figurehead or a particular denomination. The gospel stands with Christ and Christ alone. And so when we we are motivated uh, to protect reputation and we view ourselves as the gatekeepers or the reputation protectors of the gospel and the church, we have additional motivation uh, to not submit to accountability to not have transparency, to not speak against abuse, and to not say the difficult things even about leaders or institutions uh, that we may have respected or have benefited from. And really the fundamental question that we need to be asking is, what would Jesus do? You know, that that simple question we tell our children to ask, how would Jesus do this? And we can see very clearly from Scripture, Jesus would speak the truth. Jesus would pursue justice. Jesus would... uh, in all of his holiness, express his, his wrath against sin. And what we end up doing as believers, when we dim, when we dim the darkness of sin, when we don't treat it like the important thing that it is, what we have ultimately done is we've dimmed the holiness of God. Mm-hmm. We've dimmed the beauty of the gospel. We've dimmed the beauty of justice. Uh, and we end up undercutting the very thing that we think we're protecting.
1: Oh, I, I agree, Rachel. So well said. I think one of the great struggles uh, is that we oftentimes try to take on the role of God, right? Uh, rather than trusting, as you said, that Jesus will purify his church. We somehow uh, feel this this need to protect the reputation of the church. And then we find that in the midst of that, we run into a hypocrisy or self-preservation all at the cost of protecting the vulnerable and at the cost of, of true justice. Yeah, we attempt to create this facade at times that everything is okay in the church when sometimes everything isn't okay. And, Rachel, uh, in fact, your own story of abuse began in a church setting when you were quite young. Now, you've shared that you had some support at the time, but also a disappointing. And very unbiblical response by others within your church. So, can you share with us how some were helpful while others were quite hurtful during that time?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, that's correct. My first experience with sexual abuse was actually around age seven with a pedophile in my church. uh, And I did experience both responses. Uh, I experienced a very good biblical response that protected me Mm -hmm. from further abuse. And I also experienced a very damaging response. Um, that was cloaked in biblical terms, uh, and and that did a lot of damage. Uh, a lot of damage, not just to me, um, but to my my concept of church, my concept of God. Um, and so, what what really ended up happening was there was there was a group in my church who were uh, trained counselors, trained Christian counselors, um, and so they they understood dynamics of abuse. They understood grooming. They understood predatory behavior. And they observed conduct uh, with this particular pedophile, uh, between this pedophile and me, uh, that gave them serious concern for the direction he was heading. Uh, And they approached my parents and they said, you know, I think we have a problem here. And they explained what they had seen. Um, And by God's grace, my parents took that very seriously. Uh, My parents were also uh, it's starting to feel a significant concern at mm-hmm. some of the things they were seeing. Um, but when you're in that situation um, and you know you know how you're going to be treated, if you say something, you know the immediate response is going to be you're making an accusation without proof. Uh, it's very difficult to be the one to speak up. It's very difficult to, t- to trust your own judgment, to trust your own instincts. Uh, and my parents were struggling with that, struggling with being able to trust their own instincts. So having someone from the outside Uh, who understood both the gospel and understood predatory and grooming behavior, uh, come to them and say, we think we have a problem. It did what it needed to do. It confirmed their own unrest, and it gave them the strength to put up boundaries uh, and to speak and to to protect me. Um, And, of course, no one knew at that point that abuse had already occurred, uh, but I do believe it saved me uh, from significantly worse abuse uh, because abuse never stays at one level. It always escalates. Mm -hmm. Um, When my parents did that, however— there was another group uh, within the church uh, who had a very, um, very different idea about counseling, uh, very different ideas about uh, forgiveness, about grace, uh, some of the key, you know, the key doctrines of the gospel. Uh, and they viewed my parents, and expectedly so, as making an accusation uh, without foundation. Um, and so what really ended up happening was they isolated my parents and they isolated me. Uh, from the rest of the church. And so by around eight years old, uh, I was reeling from uh, not just abuse that I didn't understand and couldn't verbalize, but I was also experiencing the loss of every significant relationship uh, in my church life that had defined church for me, Mm -hmm. that had defined concepts of trust and the body of Christ uh, and family relationships And ultimately, that church actually ended up uh, splitting for many reasons, but one of them was a pattern of uh, hiding sexual abuse in the church. There were, uh, unknown to me, of course, at that time, uh, but my parents were aware of some of it, there was a history of covering up sexual abuse in that church under, under doctrines of grace, under mistaken ideas of forgiveness. Um, yeah, and, and a lot of those factors that you typically see as reasons for why churches mishandle abuse and this continued pattern uh, of mishandling sexual sin, mishandling sexual abuse uh, in the church bled over, uh, bled over into my life, and it, and in the long term, it ultimately cost the the church its very existence, and left um, many damaged people in its wake.
1: Rachel, it's, it's um that's such a telling story, and it's probably a story that 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 many others could um. Could tell themselves, and it, what's interesting is that within the church, you had the opportunity to see both those who were supportive, and and then you saw the underbelly of those who were more mm-hmm. kind of protective of of the abusers. And I, I'm wondering, you know, considering the pastors and ministry leaders that are listening in right now, what um, what rec- recommendations, what advice, not only from your own experiences, but but now, as you've um, you know been an advocate and you've had the opportunity to to speak to so many on so many different platforms and to learn and to 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 share, what what recommendations would you give to a local uh, a local pastor or ministry leader who's listening now when it comes to um, you know awareness of what's going on in you know within the congregation and just kind of um, the courage to. To be willing to talk and and move and listen and respond, in in instances of, of abuse.
0: Yeah, I think there are, there are um, many things that church leaders can do very well, uh, and I would I would start off by um, saying that you know the the authority that a pastor is given, and the and the role that a pastor has in a congregant's life, is very significant. There is. Great capability to do incredible damage. Uh, pastors are very very often the first choice for many victims when they come forward and they disclose abuse. Uh, there was actually a survey taken within the last couple of years that asked sexual assault survivors, what did you think would be the most helpful? Who did you think would be the most helpful in your healing journey? And churches were right up there at the top. Churches and religious leaders were right up there at the top. And then a follow-up question farther down was, who actually ended up being the most helpful? And that question, churches and religious leaders ranked dead last, beyond beyond the option of other. Mm. And the reason that pastors and churches are often seen as uh, initially seen as uh, the most helpful or potentially the most helpful uh, is because the survivor desperately needs what the pastor preaches. You know, a survivor has experienced incredible evil perpetrated on them. So one would think that a pastor who preaches on the holiness of God and the wrath of God against sin would be the most equipped to validate the evil done to them, the most equipped to understand the depth of the damage. Uh, survivors have had concepts of trust and safety wielded against them by their abuser most people are abused by someone that they know someone who should be safe oftentimes someone who has convinced the child uh, that they are safe through very meticulous grooming uh, techniques and so they have had these concepts all these concepts that they need to be able to function concepts of trust and safety uh, and what sacrificial love looks like all of these things have been wielded against them like a weapon And they need those concepts redefined uh, to understand what they are, to be able to function. And a pastor preaches on those things. They preach on how loving God is, how trustworthy God is, how safe God is. Those are characteristics that define God, that define our relationship with him. Uh, And so a survivor sees what a pastor teaches on, sees what a church stands for, and they think, this person, this institution should be the most equipped to understand the evil done to me. They should be the most equipped to condemn it. And the most equipped to help redefine those things that were wielded against me. And so pastors are very high on the list for initial disclosures. Uh, in addition to that, you know, studies have routinely shown that the rates of sexual abuse within members of the church, not necessarily within the church itself, but the rates at which church members experience abuse is identical uh, to the rates at which people outside the church experience abuse. Mm. Which means that by best estimates, at least 25% of the women and close to that many of the men have experienced sexual abuse in any given congregation. So pastors, if you are up in front of your church preaching on Sunday morning and you look out there and you divide your congregation into four groups, at least one whole section out of those four groups is likely to have experienced sexual violence in their lifetime. Yeah, and if you think about uh, the way we typically approach ministry— we're typically very intentional. You know, we have meal trains for new mothers uh, and for people facing crisis. We have mercy ministry funds for those who have lost their job or who are facing financial emergencies. Uh, We have Sunday school and parenting classes for new parents. And, you know, we have all of these ministries designed to meet specific needs that you know your congregation is facing and rightly so. But rarely... Do we have any specific ministries or any intentionality put into uh, reaching survivors of sexual abuse? And this is a massive oversight in the church because one of the things that we do know about sexual abuse is that it has the highest rates of PTSD and mental health issues out of any trauma or crime committed on a person who survives. It has the, uh, some of the highest rates of creating substance abuse issues, uh, drug dependency, It is uh, survivors of sexual abuse are four to six times more likely to contemplate suicide uh, compared to survivors of other forms of trauma, Um, but survivors are also very good about hiding those things uh, because that's how they stay safe. They stay safe by hiding their emotions, by appearing normal. Uh, One woman I work with refers to it as flipping the switch. Uh, And so the reality is that while your congregation, around 25% of your congregation, is suffering from these wounds that have lifelong impact on their physical body, on their emotional uh, state, on their mental health, and on their spiritual understanding uh, of what the gospel and what Christ looks like, uh, you are very unlikely to know that unless you make yourself a safe place, unless you approach those people with intentionality. And so you are likely to be hemorrhaging wounds in your church that you are completely unaware of and you will remain unaware of because a survivor has to keep you at arm's length to be safe. Mm. So the intentionality with which you approach ministry is incredibly important. Being aware of the capability you have to do incredible damage is very important uh, because what you preach on uh, is, is seen as the remedy for abuse. Uh, and is tied to the gospel, and is tied to the identity of Christ, how you respond when someone discloses abuse becomes wound up in their their conception of God. It becomes intertwined with their conception of the gospel and their conception of the church. So the ability to do significant damage is very, very high. The flip side to that, of course, is that the ability to bring incredible restoration is also very high, Uh, and that should give pastors hope. There is so much good that can be done. There is so much healing to be found. There is so much beauty in a gospel-filled response to abuse. Uh, and so, you know, that, I think that would be the first thing is just, you know, having pastors aware of the scope of the problem mm-hmm. and approaching it with intentionality. Uh, beyond that, of course, that requires some level of ed- education, right? Yeah. understanding what you're dealing with. Understanding the wounds that come from abuse, uh, having a grasp of, um, you know, the, the types of damage and struggles that survivors are likely to have, um, and interfacing with other members of the community that can help both in practical ways um, and, and in counseling is very critical. You know, pastors are not equipped to do everything. They're not God. Uh, and that should actually be a very hopeful thing. All right. Uh, Because I know pastors carry an incredible amount of weight and responsibility, and they feel that. A good pastor wants to shepherd their flock well. Uh, And so for pastors to understand it's okay that they're not the be-all, end-all, sometimes the best thing you can do uh, is be able to connect survivors with good counseling resources, good psychologists, good practical resources uh, that can help them escape an abusive situation or that can help them rebuild The life that's been shattered. Uh, But of course, that takes prevention Mm -hmm. and and preparation. So, understanding uh, the resources you can connect a survivor to, becoming educated uh, on the damage that has been done to survivors so that you can respond in a way that is gospel filled, uh, and having a team of people, ideally, uh, that is prepared to help in very practical ways or that you can connect the survivor with inside the church so that they're receiving spiritual care and support as they walk alongside other professionals who may need to be involved in survivor care. There are a lot of very practical resources available for this. Uh, the Church Cares curriculum that the SBC has just put out is a great bird's eye uh, beginning, and there are a lot of links uh, in there to additional resources, books, uh, blog articles, uh, you know, podcasts, that sort of thing. Uh, Brad Hambrick has done uh, a phenomenal three-part video course uh, that he did for his church, uh, and it's where I typically recommend starting because it is probably the fastest way to start getting an overview of the damage done by abuse uh, and how to beautifully apply the gospel to it. Uh, Diane Langberg is a Christian psychologist who is uh, just incredibly theologically sound. So grace-filled, so compassionate, uh, and she has a few books out that are excellent resources for pastors. She also has a lot of free uh, materials on her website, uh, including a, a video series uh, called Church Cares or Church as a Refuge, uh, and, and I recommend all of those resources to pastors as they're just starting to wrap their mind around the depth of the problem, uh, but approach it with hope mm. because there is great amount of healing you can bring when you do this well.
1: That's beautiful, Rachel. Thank you for those resources, and we will have links to them in our show notes so those who are listening in can learn more. Now, Rachel, I must say that as I've been listening to you, you have such a powerful grasp of the gospel and of the goodness and beauty of Christ, and not just in our conversation today, but as you've spoken elsewhere. Even in court, in your victim impact statement, you shared the gospel in a very clear and compelling way. Uh, Speaking of the hope that true repentance can bring through Christ. Now, as I was reading your book, you wrote how you wrestled with your faith over and over again. You say that you felt despair and anger and frustration. You had questions, right? Does God care? And if he does, why didn't he do something? In your book, you write, my mind drifted back to what had happened when I was seven. If abuse and injustice were as bad as I felt like they were, why did Christians get this so wrong? Or was I wrong? Maybe I didn't need to heal. Maybe I just needed to get my act together. And so I I want to ask, Rachel, today you exude such a sense of hope and a strong faith in Christ. And it's not just a privatized faith, but you are vocal about your faith, not in a a pushy way, but in a very sincere, grace-filled manner. So, Rachel, how— did you navigate this journey in such a way, considering all the evil you've experienced, that you are embracing Jesus and proclaiming His love, His hope, and His truth today?
0: Yeah, it it absolutely has been a process. Um, you know, and getting to write the book that was something I wanted to. Um, to really be able to dig into a little bit, mm-hmm. um, because particularly for those survivors who are um, co- either coming from a faith background at the time of their abuse or struggling to reconcile faith uh, with their abuse, it's a difficult journey to be on. Uh, I was saved at a very young age. Um, and so I had that you know I had that foundation. Um, but suffering sexual abuse both at age seven and then at age 15 to almost 17 uh, really challenged a lot of those ideas. Uh, And I I do believe the gospel is our best hope. It is the the existence of absolute truth found in a creator is what gives me the ability to say this was evil. And I can call it evil. It's what gives me the ability to not be dependent on society's response to me or to my abuse. uh, To be able to find my identity and to find my value. Uh, It redefines all of those concepts uh, that were wielded against me. It gives me a right definition of safety, a right definition of trustworthiness, a correct definition of what sacrificial love looks like. You know, it gives me a beautiful picture of sexuality in for what God created, the gift that God created it to be. It gives me a beautiful picture of what manhood is supposed to be yeah, and what womanhood is supposed to be. All of those things are very restorative, um, but the difficulty... Uh, that I found as I struggled through it was those pictures weren't painted for me. Uh, If anything, um, they were really damaged further many times uh, by church leaders, Um, church leaders who did not teach about the justice of God unless it was uh, to focus on my own sin. You know, and I needed to hear that because I need, I need repentance and I need God's saving grace. Uh, But I was never told that what was done to me was evil and actually had it treated like it was. Uh, you know, I had church leaders who dramatically misinterpreted mm. uh, and misapplied uh, common passages of scripture that are misinterpreted and misapplied. The story of David and Bathsheba, the rape of Tamar, um, even the story of uh, Joseph and Potiphar's wife. You know, it is, it is looked at, see, this is what a false accusation does. Uh, but really what Joseph suffered was sexual assault mm. by someone who was an authority figure. Um, you know and so uh, the mishandling of those scriptures, the mishandling of certain passages in the Levitical law uh, were very damaging to me. Uh, I had pastors that would make comments like well if the victim didn't cry out per the Levitical law then they're they're guilty yeah, and that, wow. fails un- that fails to that fails to that's unfortunately that's very common. it's mm. very, very common. Um, you know the, those passages are not treated with the intellectual and theological rigor that other passages of the little Levitical law are uh, and that does incredible damage to survivors uh, because in my case I didn't fight back partly because at times I did not know that it was abuse and because at the point in time that I did realize it was abuse I froze and about half of victims experience the freezing response where you're literally paralyzed you cannot fight back your body's in shock uh, and so because those passages were so misused Uh, and misapplied. Yeah. And it wasn't, it wasn't done directly to me. None of the pastors who preached on those passages knew that I was a survivor of sexual abuse, but they made those comments and I heard them. They preached that way in their messages and I heard it. Mm. And so the message that I internalized was, this is your fault. It's not that big of a deal. God doesn't really care. And that left me really struggling with what the Bible truly says about abuse what the Bible truly says about justice because those pictures weren't accurately painted for me. It did incredible damage. Uh, And I think that's one of the most beautiful things that a pastor can do is preach accurately. Uh, Typically where I start with victims of abuse. Now, when I'm walking alongside survivors, is I start with them in the book of revelation and we read about how God comes back, how Christ comes back in a robe, dipped in blood, bearing a sword. And I say, this is how much it matters. Because I need to see that picture. Survivors who have been through uh, evil need to see that picture. This is how much God cares about the evil that was done to you. Yeah, this, is how, this is the way he comes back to defend his daughters and to defend his sons. We need to paint that picture of God's utter holiness and apply it to the evil that's been done to people, not just to the sin that they have to repent of. Uh, and we don't do that very well, more often than not.
1: Yes, well well said. Rachel, for those who have experienced abuse and who feel that same despair that you felt, who feel like they've been let down, those who are asking some of those same questions that you asked about God, about justice, those who are struggling to reconcile their faith with their experience, what words of encouragement would you offer them today?
0: You know, the first thing I would say is, go to the scriptures, go to the scriptures yourself, read what God says about justice, read what God says about standing for the oppressed, read what he says about evil, Uh, and know that he is saying that in relation to what was done to you. There are unfortunately many times that churches and church leaders fail and get this very wrong, Um, and it does a lot of damage. Don't put your trust In church leaders. Don't put your trust in the institution of the church. Put your trust in the one who perfectly created it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because that's where we see the true picture of how much God cares about evil, uh, of how much issues of justice are interwoven into the gospel and into the personhood of Christ, uh, into everything that he is. Go there. Go to the real picture, first and foremost, and hold to that even when leaders and institutions fail.
1: That's good. That's powerful, Rachel. Rachel, uh, uh, I just want to thank you for being with us, for sharing your story and insights. Please know that our prayers are with you as you continue to serve as an advocate for justice and hope um, for survivors of, of abuse, sexual abuse, and other types of abuse. I'm just curious, Rachel, what does the future hold in terms of you continuing this message and this mission?
0: You know, there's an extent to which we're somewhat still figuring that out. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have four young kids. Uh, I do stay home and I homeschool the children. Uh, And so they are my first priority. My husband and my family are my first priority. Um, That being said, uh, we do believe that this is um, an issue that really desperately needs to be addressed. And so my hope is to continue teaching and advocating, uh, both in the religious uh, and uh, secular for lack of a better term, secular spheres, mm-hmm. um, because this issue has to be talked about. It needs to be done. It is not easy, um, but it does have to be done. And so my desire is to be faithful uh, with what I've been given, faithful in the little things and faithful in the big.
1: Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for being with us and uh, for taking the time not only to speak with uh, ministry leaders, um, but also for, for the book, What Is a Girl Worth?, um, that that you've written and um, just sharing your story um and and again i i just love the hope that you exude in the midst of this um not glossing over the evil um but but holding out that hope of christ and so thank you for that rachel and thank you for taking time to be with us today
0: thank you for having me i really appreciate it god bless you thank you